go before the Lord one more time before we get in the word. Let's just ask the Lord to come and release revelation tonight. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we submit to you and your leadership. Your leadership is perfect. Your head is like the finest gold. Your leadership is perfect. So, Lord, I'm asking by your spirit, lead us tonight. I'm asking, Lord, would you release a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of your son. Open the eyes of our heart that we might know Jesus. I pray that even tonight we would know him in a far greater measure than we've known him before. I pray, God, that you would wound our hearts with desire and you'd release reality in the kingdom. You'd give us revelation of this great bridegroom God that we have. Lord, we want to know you. We want to know your son. Lord, I pray you'd equip our hearts with might in our inner man. That we'd be able to stand before the Son of Man without offense in the day of the Lord. Now, Lord, come. Come and speak to us. Help me to speak clearly. Come, Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus. Everybody agreed, said amen. All right, good. We're going to um, continue in part two of a message we started last week, talking about the ravished heart of God. I understand that ravished is not a word that many people used. Uh, nowadays, we use famished about being hungry, but not ravished. Ravished is a term that's biblical that discusses the way that God feels about us. And I think that, um, you know, I've got a little bit of an edge on this. I've got a little zeal on this, but um, I, I think we need to figure out the biblical terms that the Lord uses and make them part of our vocabulary and our language and identify uh, the biblical uh, concepts the way the Lord identifies them. I don't, no, I don't have any problem with taking the word and then, you know, uh, massaging it and working it and putting it out there so people can understand it. But I think we should, at the very uh, bottom line, come to understand what the Bible actually says about us rather than giving it a third or fourth generation, uh, you know, transition or whatever that is. We're trying to make it palatable. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we should do that first. I think we should go with, what does the word say, and then express it and, and, and unpack it. So that at, the, at our foundation, we've got the biblical language. So it's, it's, it's got my heart a little bit like, because I think we should have a greater depth in biblical understanding in, in, the, in the biblical terms of what the Bible says about how God feels about us. And ravished is one of those. And see, I guess I've got a little edge on it, because I am one of those guys that for a long time was like, the, the lovey-dovey stuff, I don't know all about that. Let's just shout and cry out and, and pray until we fall out, and then revival will happen, and we don't have to do all this lovey-dovey thing, you know. My idea of a prayer meeting was, you know, 10 or 15 people holding hands, screaming until we all sweated and fell down. And that was a good prayer meeting, especially if you fall down. And that hopefully you're down long enough, and the Lord will come in, and then you can start laughing a little bit. Then you got the breakthrough. Which I believe in all that. I love it. But I used to think unless you sweated, unless you shouted, unless you fell down, that there wasn't really prayer. But God said, listen, prayer is supposed to be enjoyable. It doesn't have to be like working. Sometimes it is, but at the very, at the, at the very essence of prayer, all it really is is a conversation. Prayer is a conversation. It's a dialogue. It's communication. And God desires it to be endless in nature. So prayer really is endless communication with God. It doesn't have to be all these things that we've made it in religious mindsets. So I don't know why I'm saying that. But prayer's good. It's fun. And prayer with a, a, a God whose heart is ravished is extra good. It's better than what we think it is in the church. So let's, uh, let's talk about this idea. Let's talk about the ravished heart of God. And I want to just move through some concepts I'm going to get to the verse, which is Song of Solomon 4.9, which is where we get this term, ravished. I'm going to get to that verse in a minute. But I want, to just, I want to talk about what's moving in God's emotions for a minute. I want, to, I want to talk about what's moving in God's mind. You know, one of the things that we must drink deeply of in a prayer movement are the emotions and the feelings of God for His people. And many times we think God is not emotional. We think He's, you know, detached or... Or stern, if he is emotionally stern, but the Bible teaches us far differently about how God is. And so I want to discuss some of these thoughts. And um, 
looking at the scripture, you know, it's interesting to find out the way that God gets enjoyment. That's, that's, when you understand the way God gets enjoyment, man, it says so much. It's powerful. And so I started looking at uh, the fact that God, number one, does get enjoyment from stuff. Now that right there for many is like a landslide. That God actually is up there and, and he has uh, certain things that give him enjoyment in varied ways. Like that's hard to imagine. We kind of think of God as totally self-sufficient and nothing affects him at all. It's not how he set it up, beloved. Set this thing up so that he has enjoyment based on us. That's how this thing, this whole created order thing is set up, that God's enjoyment in, in his you know, eternal life, and he's, he is eternal, but God's enjoyment in his life is based on humans. That's huge. The fact that he does get enjoyment, he does get pleasure, but then it's all based on you. And so I'm going to give you a few thoughts. First thought is this, that God's source of pleasure is you. His source of pleasure is you. You are God's source of pleasure. That's huge. What does that mean? That means this, that God is pleased, delighted, and gets pleasure from nothing but you. He's not up there jumping up and down if the Falcons win. When the Braves win or lose, it it doesn't even move his heart. He's detached Emotionally, from many of the things that we place high value on, but he is intricately attached to you. His, the very source of the pleasure of God's heart is you. So let's look at a few verses. Let's look at Psalm 149. Just turn over there. Psalm 149. I want to move through some of this. I'm just setting foundation and just trying to build... trying to build a perspective for us on the way that God thinks and God feels. Many believe that God is like the Stoics thought he was, unemotional and and unattached from anything human. And I want to say God is deeply emotional and deeply touched by you. Psalm 149, verse 4. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. Where it says takes pleasure under that, right? Delights, enjoys his people. He beautifies the humble with salvation. The implications of that are huge. I'm going to read one more scripture. Psalm 16. Let's turn over there. Let's look at it. I want you to see these. I want you to mark these. I want you to go back and look at these later. I want you to pray them. We've got to get out of the mode of when we hear a message that we just go, good message, brother, amen, on the way out the door, and then we don't do anything else with it. We've got to get the word alive in our heart, and the way to get it alive in our heart is to begin to make it part of our language of prayer. So we go, God, you take pleasure in me? You take pleasure in me. Thank you, Lord, that you take pleasure in me, that you enjoy me. I'll just sit there in prayer and just go, you say I'm fair. You say I'm beautiful. You say you love me. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you love me. And then after a while, I start going, thank you that you love me. (laughs) It just starts wrecking my heart. You say I look good. You say I look good. You say I look good to you. And it just starts wrecking you. And that's what you have to do. You've got to take it into your prayer life and make the language of Scripture the language of your prayer. It's really all prayer is, saying back to God what God told us to say. It's really all prayer is. It's real simple. Psalm 16, verse 3. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones. I think the NIV says it. They are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. All my delight. I want you to just touch that just with your mind for a moment. I'm not trying to wow you with a bunch of you know, hype and preaching. I want, you to, I want you to slowly consider this thought. All the delight that the Lord gets comes from you. 
I can hear the ticker you know, moving in your brain going, well, I'm not that delightful. <laughs> he must be pretty unsatisfied. And see, this thing is so not based on what you do or what you can do. It's so not based on that. It's so based on the fact that he is love and he must love. And he wove one together such as you so he could have you to love. And he absolutely, thoroughly, completely delights and enjoys you. You are the source of his pleasure. It's easy for us to believe that about the person next to us because we know they're way better than us. But when we've got to narrow it down and, and, and make ourselves the one he says, I delight in you, I delight in you, I love you, I take pleasure in you. When it's got to be Billy, then it's like, well, no, everybody else God loves but me. I've got to work for this thing. I know I, know I live there. I live there. I go, well, I'm, you know, God, I know you love all these people. You love the weak ones. Oh, you love their, their sincerity. They're so sincere in their heart. They're weak, and you love them. But me, I've got to work hard for you to love me. Come on now. Maybe it's just me. I'll just preach to myself for the next 45 minutes. But this thing is apart from performance. It's without respect to your ability to do, make, or perform anything. That's so good. He enjoys you. In fact, in you is all his delight, all his pleasure. The source of his pleasure is you, beloved. If we begin to really touch this, he's a very easy God to come and pray and and talk to. Because I know that every time I walk in, his face is smiling upon me. He's going, you know, I don't walk in the door and he goes, ah, Billy, huh? Tapping his foot. I've been waiting to talk to you, young man. Four or five issues I have. Now, I'm going to correct you. Now, it's because I love you, but I'm going to correct you. And i got five things I need you to do. That's not how it goes. I walk in, he goes, yes! 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 I mean, he's just rejoicing in joy. I'm like over at the door. He's going, come on! Come on. I'm like, I'm going. I'm looking around. Come on, Billy, come on. I'm so excited to see you. Oh, my heart leaps when I see you. I'm going, Humphrey with an H. You sure you got the name right? He goes, totally. I go, you must not have watched very carefully this week. He goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I know you're weak. This thing is apart from your performance. I enjoy you. When you walk in, my heart explodes with pleasure just when you turn your face toward me. This thing is good. This thing is real good. You are the source of God's pleasure. That's huge. I am the source of God's pleasure. Just meditate on it. Get the verses. Pray it. And in a minute you'll go, I am the source of his pleasure. The question mark will be turned into an exclamation point. You'll be like, I am the source of his pleasure. (laughs) Yes. Your heart will be alive. I've lived long enough trying to work to attain God's approval. How about you? I've worked long and hard trying to get God to like me. He goes, None of it was necessary. He goes, I love it that you go that hard because you think I'm that important. He goes, the fact of the matter is, I love you at the highest level possible before you worked at all. Consider this. What if I, as a father, I've got three boys, six, four, and two-year-olds. Our our house is a continual wrestling match. (laughs) I said to him this morning, I go, I want to do some wrestling. We need some wrestling. We got a little... They got, there's a birthday, and they got a few toys, and they've been doing toys. I want some wrestling, you know, I want some, some fight. But what if when my boys were born, 
you know, the nurse turned to me, and I'm sort of standing there just kind of flat-footed and plain-faced. And the nurse like, don't, don't you like him? Oh, I will in a few, in a few years. W- what do you mean? You don't like him now? Oh, no, they haven't done anything for me yet. He hadn't, he hadn't worked and performed and proved to me that he's worthy of my love. They'd be like, what? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's going to have to work to get my love. The nurse would be like, um, I'm going to, like, report you now. <laughs> how much more our Father in heaven? How much, for our, how much more our Abba? He goes, this is not about how much you work. It's not about your performance. He goes, I enjoy you. I get pleasure from you. I treasure you. I cherish you. I adore you. You are the source of the enjoyment of my heart, beloved. That's what the, that's what the Lord says to you. Second thought about this, the, God's ravished heart. I'm just, these are just thoughts, just stuff. That God's definition, I think about this, this is ridiculous. It's just like, this is like the too good to be true, but it is stuff. God's definition of beauty is you. He's like, he hadn't looked lately. Because <laughs> I look at me in the mirror every morning, and I know this doesn't look so nice. No, he goes this. This is what he says. He goes, your heart, your sincere heart is how I define beauty. Somebody goes, oh, sincere heart means perfect. No, no, no. Sincere heart means my spirit is willing, but I have weak flesh. The sincerity in your heart is what God identifies as beautiful. That's what he calls beauty. He, he, he looks at the mountain ranges, ranges that he created. He looks at the, the stars and the universe. He looks at all the expanse of creation and all the things that cause our hearts to, wow. wow. He goes, none of it is beautiful. What's beautiful to me is you. Your sincerity is beautiful. See, Psalm 45, verse 11, says it like this, the New International. I always, I always make fun of the New International Version. It's a really good version. I shouldn't do it. I, I won't say anything else, but it's good. It says it's got some good stuff. But 45, Psalm 45, verse 11, says, The king is enthralled by your beauty. I'm like, what? This is too, no, no, no. This is good. This is too good. Enthralled by my beauty? Some of the dudes are going, what if I don't want to be beautiful? <laughs> you know, man, what, what if, uh, if I'm not feeling too beautiful, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, let's, just, let's just work through this a little bit. Let's unpack it for the dudes, and it only gets better for the ladies and the romantics. So, An enthralled king... Enthralled, it means he's, he's gripped with feelings of emotion and desire. The king is gripped by you and your beauty. Huh. Enthralled is enchanted, fascinated, spellbound, and captivated. Spellbound. Absorbed and entranced. That's so good. Jesus stares at you with wanting and longing eyes captivated by you. Your beauty, the word really is majesty and splendor. Get the picture. The uncreated, perfect, beautiful God is mesmerized, spellbound with you, and he says, you are majestic. You are are full of splendor. You are beautiful. We go, how? I know me. I know me. I'm weak. I've got issues. I fall during the five o'clock traffic every Friday. I've got problems. 
He goes, it's not what you do. He goes, I don't look on the outward appearance. I look on the heart. And there's a sincere yes inside of you. You've said yes to me. He goes, and it's absolutely overwhelmed me and enchanted me with you. You're beautiful. Your yes is beautiful. That's what it is. It's the sincerity of your heart. This is a word to sincere believers. Ones who say, you know what, Jesus? I want you. I don't have it all together. I'm weak in 95 ways. He goes, it's 127, but don't, nobody's counting. You go, I'm weak in many ways, but I want you regardless. He goes, your yes, before you've done one action, he goes, your yes is beautiful to me. He goes, I'm captivated. I'm fascinated. I'm enchanted with you. The king is enthralled with, he calls it, Majesty with your splendor, your beauty. He's enthralled with you. Now put that, just, just put your mind around that. Every day, Jesus, all God, all man, perfect and beautiful in every way. You open your eyes, and he goes, there she is. There he is. And the angels are going, it's a human. They're kind of weird. He goes, no. He's beautiful. I just, I, I just, there's this, I just believe there's this grand angelic confusion over God's desire over humanity. When God went to create man, you know, he creates everything, and then all the angels are there, and they're like, God goes, this next uh, function of my creation, this next part of my creation, he goes, it will be the most grand, beautiful, magnificent thing I will make. He goes, and this next piece of my creation will receive all of my desire and it will be the source of enjoyment for me and the angels go unbelievable they're, they're looking around and God begins to dig in the dirt they're like okay he's going to do something amazing I know and God puts together a man and they go uh, okay he looks okay it's not what I thought the angels are watching him and Adam is out there, and he's, you know, walking around the garden, and it gets warm. He begins to perspire a little bit. And they're looking at God, and they're going, God loves him? And they can smell him. He's, he stinks. <laughs> God loves him? And Adam goes and eats a few meals, and nature takes his course, and the angels are dramatically offended. <laughs> what is that? Profound angelic confusion. And God goes, I love him. I mean, from that moment on, they're just like, I don't get it. I don't get it. He's the boss. We'll do what he said. We'll minister to these guys. Whatever. Maybe we can help them. The king is enthralled by your beauty, he's enchanted, he's fascinated. See, what it is is the yes in your heart takes you from being completely ruined by sin. One sin thoroughly and completely ruins you apart from Christ. It destroys all your glory. It, 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 it's like, uh, it takes your glory. There's um, five scriptures, let's just move on. It takes your glory from you. One sin destroys that but one yes to him saying I want you I don't want this the yes the salvation yes it imparts immediately imparts dynamic beauty into your life and it's the only beauty that God desires under all of creation beloved is you you're the only thing he identifies and defines as beautiful it's what delights and, and, and it's what uh, he defines as what delights his heart. It's what enthralls him. That's the one thing. It's what enthralls him. It's what fascinates him. Now, thirdly is this. We understand that God's complete focus and object of love is you. But just dot, dot, dot it and think of this. You are the only thing under creation that is able to offer love to him. You're the only thing 
under all of creation that is able to genuinely and authentically offer back to the one who is love, love. I started meditating on this today. It was stunning me. The God who is love had to love. Therefore, he weaved your DNA together and made you so he could love you. But yet, he imparts to you the ability to love. And the only thing under all creation that can love God back, that can love God, period, is you. It moves his heart. We call it worship. Voluntary love. See, when you identify worship as voluntary love, this entire thing makes total sense. He goes, I'm looking for people who will offer to me love as a response of my love to them. We are the only thing. I just think that's huge. We're the only thing under creation that's able to love him back. You're able to love him, period. How did he? So he sets the framework up because what it says to me is, he was incomplete. He's perfect. Let me say it differently. He's perfect, uh, but he has to have an object of, of, of affection in order to be love because love must love in order for it to be love. Love cannot be only self-absorbed. It must be giving, right? So he goes, I, I am love, and I, so I've got perfect love within the Godhead. He goes, but I want to love uh, outside of the God, I must love outside of the God. I must give love. I will make people so I can love. But then he sets it up to be able to receive love. It's massive. The framework of this thing is such that God sets it up so he, his, I believe his heart is touched, deeply touched by our love for him. It's huge. You're the only one that can offer it to him. Now, what's amazing about it is this: is that even in weakness, even in uh, barrenness, even in um, even when you when you deny him, he believes love that your love, when your heart is sincere, he believes your love is authentic. This is a huge one. Now, let's go turn into Song of Solomon four. Let's just. Fly over there for a minute. Verse 1, Song of Solomon 4. This is a verse that just needs lots of meditation. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the, the, the first few phrases. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. This is the bridegroom talking. This is Jesus speaking to us, his bride. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. He says it twice. He uses behold to describe the, the majestic side of it. It's, it's a wow in the heart of God. He goes, whoa, you're fair. Whoa, you're beautiful. Whoa, you look good. He goes, I love you. He goes, my love, I love you. And he goes, whoa, you look good. And he uses this phrase, you have dove's eyes behind your veil. If you've been in the Song of Solomon class, we've explained a little bit about that, but I want to touch on it for our purposes here. Doves are very unique animals. Very unique birds. Doves do not have peripheral vision. They only see what's directly in front of them. So they don't see out here to the side. They don't, ha they don't have the distraction of other things. They only see what is in front of them, what they're focused on. The other thing about doves that's very unusual, and, and the Lord specifically uses and, he, and he, he, he embroiders the reality of this in creation, in a dove, and then he uses this symbol in the allegory to explain the way he sees us as authentic lovers, and, and this is how. He goes, uh, the other thing is that doves are monogamous. 
they mate with only one other dove their entire life, and that's it. So they are totally focused in their vision and totally faithful in their love. And so he says to you, you are beautiful. And and see, this is a a place where the bride, she hasn't done anything yet. (laughs) All she's done is been weak, and then she said yes. And he comes out of that place where she's just said yes, and he comes and he goes, you are beautiful for saying yes. He goes, so beautiful, you're just like a dove. He goes, authentic lover of me. He goes, I believe your love is real. I believe your love is focused. I believe you're faithful. He goes, I see you as faithful. Now, I don't know what that does to your heart, but what it did to my heart, when I begin to believe and hear that God thought my love for him was real, it absolutely changed the way I, I viewed him and, and my entire relationship with God exploded. When I begin to believe and see that God saw me as an authentic lover of God rather than a, a worthless, hopeless hypocrite every time I sinned. See, even when you sin, he goes, you have dove's eyes. God's economy is so different. We go, wait a minute, I just sinned. He goes, you've got a yes in your heart. It'll draw you back to, to total obedience and devotion to me. We go, huh? He goes, you have dove's eyes. Your love is real. And the way we think is we go, well, I, I had dove's eyes yesterday because I was doing good. But today I jacked it all up. <laughs> I'm, I am not an authentic lover of God. I am a hopeless hypocrite. I need to go and put myself in purgatory and do a bunch of penance to prove that I can live back over here where I'm a good guy again. He goes, no. Over here, when you've made the mistakes and you've fallen into sin, he goes, in that place, though you've displayed your weakness, he goes, the love in your heart is real. He goes, you are a sincere lover of me. He goes, and I believe it. All of a sudden, when I begin to touch that, I begin to realize I don't have to work my way back to get him to embrace me again. I simply have to disagree with sin and agree with him that he says I'm an authentic lover. And I go, yes. He goes, come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Not because you're perfect. It's so you can receive grace and mercy. That's the point. Come boldly to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. You don't come in boldly because you're so perfect. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when you're in a time of need and you've, you've, the wheels have come off, you go, ah. He goes, come boldly because you're authentic. Boldly doesn't mean haughtily. It doesn't mean carelessly with sin. It means this sin was not what I want. I want you. He goes, that's right. Disagree with it. We go, I don't agree with it. He goes, great, agree with me. We go, great, I agree with you. He goes, come in boldly. I go, yes. Don't, don't, don't make the shift and say, well, God is so loving and he sees me as an authentic lover, therefore I can be careless about sin. No, 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 beloved. Sin will destroy you. And he's a burning, ravished bridegroom God who will judge everything that hinders love. He is the original fatal attraction. He has no problem moving against in power and in zeal anything that gets in the way between you and him. Don't presume weakness upon the Lord because he desires you so much. You should realize that his desire for you is a burning furnace. He is a consuming fire. But he says, you have dove's eyes. <laughs> even when we're weak, even in our imperfections. He doesn't tell you that you're a hopeless hypocrite. He says, your eyes are focused on me. I know, I see the yes in your heart. He goes, it's beautiful. Behold, you're fair. Behold, you're fair. That's the way that God speaks. So verse 9, this is where we get this term. He says, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes. 
with one link of your necklace. This has so, there's so many, there's so much uh, depth to this thought, but let's just move through some of them. The God that we serve, the uncreated God, the perfect God, the God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who rules all the universe, every galaxy, every bit of under creation, the God who is in control of it all and it all consists by his word is a bridegroom God who is ravished at the very core of his heart for you. That is massive. He is burning in passion and desire for people. Specifically, you've got to always dial it in like this because we have such a tendency to say other people, specifically you. Burning in, in, in desire and passion for you. His heart is ravished. The word ravished literally means snatched away. Stolen. His heart is stolen by violence, or, or another, another uh, uh, definition is delighted to ecstasy. God's heart is delighted to ecstasy by you. Man, that's good. That's good, guys. This is good. Y'all are just going... <laughs> I'm sitting in stunned silence because I just can't <laughs> I just can't imagine. That's God. He's a ravished bridegroom God. Delighted to ecstasy with you. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Here's what I want you to think about. Let's think about some thoughts on, on this. Let's just unpack this a little bit. Have you considered that prior to creation there's a pre-existent ache of desire within the heart of God prior to creation he'd already created you in his mind so therefore you already were but you weren't yet okay yeah so prior to making anybody there's an ache and a longing to love and you're the object of it. I want you to think about how much momentum this ache has gained throughout the ages. He's totally, he's fully love and so he wants to completely release all of the essence of who he is and he has no one to release it upon until he creates you. So he creates people. There's an ache and a longing of desire for encounter in his heart for encounter with you. And this ache has been gaining momentum for ages. Now it's realized in part when he creates Adam and he walks with Adam in the cool of the day. But there's, there's relationship, but it's still separate. And then Adam chooses sin and now there's full separation and the entire uh, story comes with God winning back the damsel in distress all those stories about the guy winning back the damsel in distress it's the story of the gospel we've got a bridegroom God who wins back the damsel in distress us by the sacrifice of himself what we do is we, the story is woven within our DNA, within our character and our fabric of who we are. And so we make it a movie and we make it a cartoon and we make it Popeye and Braveheart. Braveheart, man, he's slaying the wicked for the, for the honor of his, of his beloved. So good. That's who he is. Well, so we weave it through all of our stories, but that's what God did. So there's this, this ache within God's heart from, from eternity past. Then he gets sort of a little bit of the ache is, is sort of goes away when he creates Adam, and then the ache explodes again when man is there before him, but he's separated. And the plan comes for a wedding in future years. And the son desires full union and full disclosure with the bride. 
and the ache in the heart of God, what is it like? The God who is love is not able to fully express love until that day that we're joined and united with him in partnership and bridal identity when we become one with the bridegroom. What, will it, what is going on in his heart right now, beloved? When it says he's ravished, I mean, put over there, he's ravenous. He is aching and longing and desiring union, partnership with you. This isn't some little like flimsy light thing like, oh, I kind of love you. I love you some. Or or, or the other thing, I love you because I have to because I'm God. He is a molten cauldron of love. Boiling. <laughs> the words are hilarious, but I don't know any other way to describe this thing. This is ridiculous. Perfect love, and it's kept from being able to express itself perfectly. What's going on in his heart? He's ravished. He's ravished. You don't think he's going to push out of the way with force anything that gets in the way between you and him? In exaggerated measures, he will slay everything that hinders love. I'm trying to describe a term. It's called lovesick. We have a bridegroom God who is lovesick over you. Every day of your life, he's lovesick. Every day of your life, he is looking for you. Every day of your life, his, his pleasure and enjoyment comes from you. Every day of your life, his heart is touched with, with feelings of joy. At, at your, just simply at your gaze, at your glance, it says. With one look of your eye. One glance. Every day of your life, whenever you glance towards him, he says, Oh, my heart is ravished for you. You touch him deeply. Let me ask you this question. You touch him deeply when you glance. What happens if you gaze? What happens if you fix in fascination your eyes on the one who is beauty itself? What goes on in his heart? Here's the thought. What does it mean that the uncreated God becomes a man and willingly gets crushed at the hands of humans and suffers under the penalty of the wrath of God so that he could enter into fully revealed intimacy with you? What does it mean? How deep is this thing? To plumb the depths of the love of God, beloved, it'll take our entire lives. I mean, we, we could go Song of Solomon 4.9 for the next year, and we wouldn't be touching it. You know where this thing falls down? Somebody's like, well, it's real descriptive. I mean, if for a year, I mean, if we had all this description over a year, I think I'd be starting to get it. You know, you know, you know where this thing falls down? This thing falls down with words. Do you know why? Because our words are clothed with finiteness. And we're trying to describe something. And and our minds are sealed with finiteness. And we're trying to embrace and comprehend and describe something that's infinite in measure. Every day of our life we could meditate on it. And it would cause our heart to come alive. And we'd still only scratch the surface. And there's a day coming though we see him we're going to be like him there'll be full disclosure what is that going to be you know I was thinking about when Jamie was telling her testimony and I'll just wrap up with this when Jamie was telling her testimony she said I know there's more and I want it and I've said that many times I've said God there's more of you And then what she said when she was telling her testimony, she said, I know there's more and I want it. 
And then she described how she came to the house of prayer and realized she didn't know anything. This man went, well, man, it sounds like you backslid. Well, what happened was this. She went from desiring a heavier encounter of power to coming into revelation that the power encounter with God is like .0001 on the scale of 10 million of who he really is and all that he has to offer. <laughs> yes, it is about having a power encounter and experiencing and a tasting and seeing and oh, I want to taste and see. I want to touch and feel and taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, I want it in a big way. It is about that. But it's so much more. It's about intimate knowledge of this one who is burning with a ravished heart for me. Comprehending thoroughly uh, in my spirit, in my mind, in my flesh, in every wit who he is and what he feels and knowing him deeply. That's really what this thing is about. He made you to love you. He focused his desire on you. And you have the capacity to touch his heart. You are the source of his pleasure. That's huge. You're the source of his delight. That should put a smile on our face. And he doesn't, he doesn't add it up the way we add it up. He really doesn't. He goes, even in your weakness, your sincerity of heart, he goes, I say it's real. I say it's real. It's good. All right, let's stand. So in about 10 minutes, we'll start that meeting in the, in the room with information. just ask the Lord to come let's just take a few moments and just love on the Lord let's just allow our hearts to become tender again in his presence the revelation of his desire that his heart is actually touched by us he believes your love is authentic he believes your love is real his heart is touched by you supernatural emotions of pleasure explode in the heart of God at your glance what happens at your gaze Lord, would you just come? Release revelation, even in a greater measure. The reality of your desire for weak, broken people like us. And even more than that, the reality that your heart is touched. Your heart is blessed. Deeply and dramatically moved with emotion. By our glance. He says, you have ravished me. For one look of your eye. You've ravished me. He says, with one link of your necklace, with even any attempt to try to beautify me, beautify yourself for me, he goes, you've overwhelmed me. You've ravished me. You've snatched my heart away. God, reveal reality in your desires and your passions for us. Invigorate our hearts. We could stand before you. A place of intimacy and a place of prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Engage us again. Engage us again and draw us into intimacy. Reveal the reality of the ache and the desire that's within you. Lord, we discuss a groan. We discuss an ache. 
But your heart aches, your heart longs, your heart desires at a far greater scale than we've ever dreamed. You're a lover. The very core of who you are, God. You're a bridegroom, God, who's deeply in love with us. You're ravished. Reveal it to us, God. Reveal the reality. Come, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Awaken love. Awaken love. Awaken love. Let the coldness go. Unlock hearts. Unlock our hearts, God. The coldness go. Let every veil be torn away from our eyes. Everything that would keep us locked away and veiled from you, let it be torn from our eyes, God. That our hearts would come alive. The reality of your desire and your passion for us. Love begets love. We love to be loved by you and we love to love you. And you love to be loved by us. I just feel that. I sense that. It's the Father saying, I love to be loved by you. And we say, no, we love to be loved by you. He goes, I love to be loved by you. Because you're releasing pleasure in my being at a greater measure with every glance of your eye. Let's fix our gaze on it. Yes. Come, come, Holy Spirit, come. Come. Come even more powerfully now. Release the fire of God on this house. The burnings and the yearnings of God on your people. Release it. In the name of Jesus.